and welcome, my friend, to the Minnesota Gardening Podcast. My name is Brad Tabke, and I am your host of the podcast, and it is just my absolute honor to have you here with us today for this episode. And today we're going to do something different on the podcast and we're going to do a replay of our 16th episode. And you'll know why in just a second here. But back when we released this, we had a two part episode planned and uh, the second part was unfortunately lost and we had not technical issues and could not find it anywhere. And lo and behold, just recently, we found the second episode and found the the data for it. So I'm really, really happy to give you this first episode of a two-part episode with the incomparable, amazing, extraordinary professor at the University of Delaware, Doug Tallamy. And so Doug Tallamy is a hero of mine. He has helped me learn about native landscaping and making sure that we are working really hard to preserve our local ecosystems and just really cool stuff like that. So this episode, two episodes, was an absolute honor of mine to talk with Doug Tallamy. And so I'll come back at the end and give you some more information about a couple things here specifically to Minnesota that we can talk about. But here is our episode, our first episode with Professor Doug Tallamy. All right. Today for this episode of the Minnesota Gardening Podcast, I am beyond honored and pleased to have such a wonderful guest with us here today. We have Professor Doug Tallamy is a professor in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware, where he's authored 104 research publications and taught insect-related courses for 40 years. And among Chief among his research goals is to better understand the many ways insects interact with plants and how such interactions determine the diversity of animal communities. And he's written a bunch of just wonderful books that everyone should read. So Doug Tallamy, thank you so, so much for being with us here today. Well, it is a pleasure. So you are just, I want to tell a quick story here before we get going. And I have a horticulture and a farming background from Northwest Iowa and have always had some sort of concern and just a little twitch in my brain as to how we do things. And I've been planting native plants for a long time. I've been planting and doing things, but have never been able to put the whole pieces together the, uh, to assemble the entire puzzle. And it wasn't until I started following you and Rick Dark and reading books and getting further Rebecca McMacken and just different folks like that who are really working on ecology and getting the entire system put together. And I was listening to a podcast the other day where the guest on the podcast had read a book in his teens and he told the, the podcast interviewer that that book changed his brain chemistry and it was nothing but a compliment. And I realized that that's what your writings and things did to me is it changed my brain chemistry and allowed me to put everything together to really understand and things that were right in front of my nose, but understand how the whole ecosystem pieces work together. And I just want to first thank you so much for helping me and so many people assemble the puzzles and, and putting those things together. And can you talk a little bit, just give a quick primer as to what the uh, ecological landscape and how this whole system fits together from your perspective? Uh, well, that's a, that's, that's a big question. You know, plants capture the energy from the sun and they turn it into food. If they don't pass it on, if the, if the food remains in the plant, in other words, if nothing eats that plant, then you don't have a food web. You don't have a functional ecosystem. You won't have any animals. So plants are decorations. Yes, they're pretty, but they have to pass the food on if we're going to have functional ecosystems. So in the past, we humans 
decorated our landscapes strictly from an aesthetic perspective. And I understand that we had this idea that nature is happy out there someplace. And it used to be, uh, but there's very little nature left in most places these days, which means the plants we put in our human dominated landscapes have to assume the responsibility that the native plants in our, our uh, natural areas did when they were large and, and healthy. So that means when we choose plants for our landscapes, we have to choose plants that are going to be willing to pass on some of that energy so that we have uh, things like caterpillars, which enable birds to reproduce so that you have uh, all the animals that actually run the ecosystems. And the reason we have to do that is they're our life support system. We cannot have ecosystem failure every place we have humans because that's a dead earth right there. And we're headed in that direction. So that kind of lays the landscape out. This is why why native plants are important. They pass on their energy much better than non-native plants. Why insects are important. Why why news about global insect decline is is extremely disturbing because they are the little things that run the world. And we're seeing that in, in, in resulting other statistics, like we've lost 3 billion birds in the last 50 years. And the UN says we're going to lose a million species in the next 20 years. None of these things are options. We've got to turn this around. So this becomes a, a, a an urgent cause, really, for our own good, you know, not not just to save nature because we like nature, but because we need it. So I want to take and just assume that our listeners are on board with the understanding that that we're in a crisis and that we need to take action steps right now. We're this is going to be the podcast will be separated into two different episodes. We'll have one if you're listening currently in late winter of 22, and then we'll have a second one that will come out in summer of 22. And in that second one, we're going to take a deep dive into the minutia and the the what people really need to know about those insect plant bird relationships and the ecology of everything that's going on there. But for this first episode, I would really like to talk about what you just mentioned there about taking action and moving forward with things. So if we take a scenario of a home in, we'll use here, I'm in Shakopee, Minnesota. So if you take a home in Shakopee, Minnesota, that's a a quarter or a third of an acre. And let's talk about specific things and small steps that people can take and how that can be important. So what is one of the first things you think that homeowners and uh, people with access to land should be doing on their land to help with uh, the ecology and save the insects and birds. Okay. Well, there's four things that every landscape has to accomplish ecologically. If we're going to turn this around, nobody gets a pass on this. And one of them is to support uh, a complex community of pollinators. We need pollinators everywhere, not just next to agriculture because they're pollinating 90% of our flowering plants and 80% of all plants. So, Your landscape has to make pollinators. Your landscape has to sequester carbon. It's got to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, lock it up in plant tissues, have those plants pump it into the ground. That's that's how we're going to address climate change right there. So we're going to support pollinators. We're going to sequester carbon. We're going to manage the watershed. Everybody lives in a watershed. Everybody. And again, nobody has the ethical right to destroy that watershed by the way they manage their land. And of course, plants are what's managing our watershed. And we have to support a viable food web. So it's not just pollinators out there. You won't have the birds or anything else if you don't have the insects and things that those those birds eat. And they all come from the plants. So how do you accomplish all of those things? It's through plant choice. So we got our little yard there. What are we going to do? 
you know, one of the big mistakes that we make across the country is to have too much of the landscape in lawn. We've got over 40 million acres of lawn. That's a, that's a dead ecological landscape, particularly the way we treat it. So if you have the option of reducing the area you have in lawn, that would be great. How do you do that? Well, one, the easiest thing to do is to plant a tree. <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not describing a very big landscape, so you're not going to have room for a lot of trees. But I bet you can get at least one more tree into your landscape. And a great way to reduce the lawn in that landscape is to think about the area under that tree. Put a bed around that tree. That does two things. It reduces the area that's in lawn. You don't want lawn to go up right up to your trees. It's very unhealthy for the tree. It compacts the soil and and it's, it, it's doing nothing for the tree. So if you put a bed under there, it's a good place to uh, accumulate leaf litter that then gets broken down and nourishes that tree over time. Uh, it becomes a, a safe landing site for the caterpillars that are developing in that tree. They Most of them fall from the tree and pupate underground or in the leaf litter under your tree. If you have lawn under there and none of that happens and they all die. Uh, and that area that is now in a bed under your tree is not lawn anymore. So you've got less, less lawn. Lawn should be a, and it's a place where you walk. You want, you want swaths of lawn through your yard so that you can move around your landscape and actually use it. Thomas Rayner says lawn should be not, it should be an area rug. It should not be wall-to-wall carpeting. And I like that analogy. So planting a tree is the easiest thing you can, you can do. So with, with that, just to make this very actual, what sort of ways are best for people to remove that lawn? Or is it a labor-intensive way of getting a sod color and pulling everything out? Do you recommend that people overseed it with native plants? Like what, what kinds of things work best from your experience? Yeah, that's a good question. I give a talk and, and I hear people say, oh, I'm going to go home and rip out all my lawn. Don't do that. <laughs> that's that's a big job, and then you have a bunch of bare soil. I would pick at it. I would I would take small areas in your in your yard and say, well, okay, I'm going to remove this lawn, and then plant a bed, plant a tree, plant you know a pocket meadow, but but get bite sized pieces so that it's doable, it's not expensive, and it doesn't overwhelm you. For most of the things you want to do, you really have to kill the grass that is now lawn. So you can dig it up like sod, and that's you know that's a pretty good way to do it. It's it is labor intensive, but it's gone. You know the the landscapers who are doing this quickly will will spray it, and that works too. But a lot of people don't want to don't want to spray. You can you can cover it. There's the cover it with black plastic or cover it with cardboard. That works if you do it carefully and if you're patient. Because you've got to kill those grass roots, and that can take more than a year of covering to do that. But if you've got a lot of time, and and you know, you can do this in your backyard or someplace where it's not not too ugly, that's an option. Overseeding in grass is not a good choice because the grass outcompetes most of those tiny little seeds. When you if you're planting a, a little pocket prairie or something, and you're you're trying to get those native plants going. They come up as tiny little things, and they and and they just won't do it in 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 sod. You're going to have to get rid of that grass first. You can put in plugs; they're much more competitive, and that will get your plants going much faster. But you really do want to get rid of the grass. And one of those methods that I, I talked about first, because competition in the early stages of putting in native plants is a, is a serious problem. So that's. Perfect. I uh, really appreciate that. 
very concrete action step as to what people need to do. And so once you get that grass out of there, what are the qualifications and what kinds of plants should people put back in its place? That is site dependent and it's, it's owner dependent. What do you want it to look like? What do you want it to accomplish? Think of those four things I talk about. You know, who's going to sequester most of the carbon? It's going to be trees, although prairie plantings uh, sequester a much more carbon than people think uh, because they get very deep root systems. It depends on the soil that you have. Are you in acidic soil, basic soil, um, deep prairie soils? Are you on a rocky slope? And all of those things will dictate what plants you're going to you're going to choose. If you're talking about the front yard, you've got to you've got to consider cues for care. We are not trying to, we're not trying to buck the culture to the point where everybody hates us. Uh, we would like to get more functional plants into the landscape in a way where, where uh, it fits right in with the culture and nobody even notices it. We we'll call it guerrilla landscaping. Um, so uh, this is why the lawn that you keep should be manicured, should be mowed regularly. That's a cue for care. It shows that you are, you are with the program. You understand that, that, uh, you know, the way your property looks. People always worry about property values. We're not going to not going to make ugly properties here. We're just going to have more plants in them. I've lost my train of thought. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> no, that was that was absolutely perfect. And so with with that of having lawn and and framing the native plants with lawn around the edges, so that people those cues and continuing to know there, and then with deciding what plants and what types of plants to put. Back in. Let's talk, drill down a little bit more on the definition of native for a specific region. Here in Minnesota, we have multiple biomes. We have prairie biome. We have pine forest of the north and those kinds of things. How do you know what and what is a good way to find what native plants are to your specific location? Yeah, another good question. My definition of a native plant is one that has an evolutionary history with the plants and animals around it. So it's been part of this general community, part of the ecoregion, the biome in which you live for evolutionary time periods. That's long time periods. It's not just the last 50 years or so. Now, plant communities move around. When the glaciers came, they all moved south. And when they retreated, they moved north again. So it's not just what was here forever um, because things are dynamic. They move around. But it's what what individuals were interacting with each other. So how do you know what that is? Um, well, you know, if you're talking about a particular plant, you can look at its natural distribution. And the most convenient way, the most accurate way to do that is with a website called Bonap. It's the biota, biota of North America, blah, 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 just B-O-N-A-P. Uh, and it will pop up and you can, you can then choose the genus of plant that you're, you're looking for. And all the species in that genus will pop up on maps and they're colored in, whether they're native or not. And it shows you exactly where that plant has existed in recent times. And you can say, okay, here, this is where it is. This, and it'll tell you whether it's native or not. So you don't have to guess anymore. Hello, my friend Brad here. Just wanted to let you know about our awesome service we have over at minnesotagardening.com. It's called Quick Huddle. So with Quick Huddle, you can have a one-on-one 10-minute 
session with me. It's live, scheduled whenever you would like to have it. And uh, with this, we can look at if you have a question about whether a plant would work or what would make sense in the back corner of your yard. If you've got a problem with your grass, we can look at that together. You want to know if your tomatoes are growing right. We can talk about that as well. And so this 10-minute quick huddle helps answer whatever questions you've got. And I couldn't tell you more, my friend, about how super simple we've made it for you to schedule. So you just go to minnesotagardening.com in the main menu, click on quick huddle, and you get sent to our Calendly link. And there you will be able to find a time that works for you and works for me to get this 10-minute huddle scheduled and you pay for it right there. We schedule it, we get it done. And so it's really, really exciting and a super, super easy way to get your landscape questions personally answered by me. So go to minnesotagardening.com and click on click huddle to schedule yours today. So with that, how, uh, how strict do we want to be on that native plant to our region? For example, I have always loved shagbark hickory and i had just always assumed that they were native here in minnesota and so when i i I went on the website and looked they aren't native specifically to where i am but probably i think it's a couple hundred miles not even that a hundred miles southeast of where we are in far southeast minnesota they are native there and they've been found all through wisconsin and how how closely do we adhere to that especially understanding where we're at in climate change and the changing uh weather patterns and things well, it depends on where you you live. Now, you in Minnesota are are in a transition zone. You're you know you're much farther west than we are here in Pennsylvania, and you're moving from areas where you get quite a bit of rain into areas that are drier. You're moving from treed areas into prairie regions, and then the farther west you go, that the drying continues. Um, so you have to be a little stricter if you move too far away from the normal distribution of hickories, you might be moving out of the, the rain zone that they can actually survive in. Uh, I think about about how useful plants are in terms of their contributions to food webs. And, and that, it depends on their contributions to local insect populations. And insect populations move around. So if, if you planted a hickory and it was 100 miles from any other hickory, it might be a while before hickory insects actually found it. And if it's the only tree, they probably never would. But if other people are planting it, the populations will, will follow it. And we've seen this a number of times. You know, people planted black locusts way outside of its range because it was a great, it was a great fence tree. Um, pipe vine, it's a, it's a plant of the Appalachian Mountains, but it's now an ornamental plant. And the pipe vine swallowtail has followed those ornamental plantings all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so, so the contributions of these plants uh, are not necessarily negated when you move them a little outside your range. That you know, some people get upset about that, uh, and and so you can be as 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 conservative uh, as you want in terms of your plant choice. I know people in Long Island that won't, if a plant is not within forty miles of where they live, they won't use it because uh, they're worried about polluting the gene pool. Studies have shown that really doesn't happen. Your, your little plant is not going to pollute the, the gene pool. And if you plant your plant outside the area where it can, it can live, outside of its provenance, in other words, it'll die. And you, know, you haven't lost that that much. So I'm a little bit looser on plant choice like that than, than uh, 
some people are. But you know, if you take if you take blue spruce from the Colorado Rockies and you plant it in Delaware, it's pretty obvious. That's that's it's outside of its its eco region. It will grow just fine. But it acts like a non-native plant and doesn't contribute very much at all. Got it. That's a really good example there. And so can we talk a little bit about as well about cultivars of native plants. And so if you have here in Minnesota, we have uh, a great example is coneflower. So we've got coneflower that grows in native prairies here in Minnesota. But then if you go to a garden center or somewhere, there are a zillion different uh, coneflower cultivars that you could plant. Is it is it okay to plant cultivars or or different types of that native species or how does that work with food web and and moving forward that way? Those cultivars have been created but coneflower is a great example. Uh, to change the fashion. It's like hemlines going up and down. If you if you create a new cultivar of coneflower each year, people will buy it each year. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a sales tactic. It's not created for ecological benefit. Although I've often wondered, you know, maybe you could create a, a coneflower with twice as much nectar or something. You probably could. But when you are choosing cultivars, you are, you are taking a chance that it will not be as ecologically productive as the straight species. Now, we've done studies with woody plants in terms of, of insect use of the leaves. When you take a tall plant, you make it short or if you if you make a green leaf red or purple, very common cultivar. If you enhance berry size, if you introduce disease resistance, we had six different traits we looked at. And the only trait that consistently reduced insect use was making a green leaf red or purple because that's loading the leaf with anthocyanins and that those are feeding deterrents. So, you know, that's, I, I guess that's pretty good uh, news. Some cultivars are quite useful in the landscape, particularly the ones that take tall, leggy plants and make them a little bit shorter. But when you look at pollinators, Annie White at the University of Vermont has, has uh, done this. And there are very few studies on this, by the way. Uh, but, but her news is not so good. When you start changing flower traits, like with cone flowers, when you make a cone flower look like a zinnia, um, that's, that's creating a double flower. In other words, you're, you're taking reproductive parts of the flower and, and turning them into petals. You see this quite a bit. That's taking the, the nectar reward and the pollen reward out of the flower entirely. So that's, that's not going to be any use at, at all. If you change the, the petal shape or the, the flower size, flowers have very strict energy budgets. So you're taking energy from typically the production of reproductive materials and putting them into some decorative uh, function. You're messing with the specialized relationship between specialist bees and, and the flower. And we've got, you know, we've got about 4,000 species of native bees in the country. A third of them are highly specialized. They can only reproduce on the pollen of particular plants. And if you change that plant in some way, they have difficulty using it. But people see honeybees and, and, and bumblebees, which are good generalists, coming to their flowers. They say, oh, it's great for the pollinators. Well, it's great for a few generalists, but you've knocked out your, your specialists. So when it comes to flowers, if you can get straight species, we know they work. We don't have to guess. Now that doesn't mean that all cultivars are not as good because some are, some are, but there's thousands of cultivars and nobody's tested them all. So I, the big problem with cultivars ecologically is that they're cloned. They have zero genetic variability. And uh -huh, we know in the it, age of climate it. change, that's not a good idea. We want as much genetic variability as, as possible. So I would love to send a message to the nursery 
industry that um, we're more interested in function these days than we used to be and offer straight species so the public can decide. Right. It's beautiful. It's a great thing. And as so as people are taking out their lawn and planting beautiful native coneflowers, what what are other action steps and what are other things that homeowners and people with access to land should be doing? You know, I just mentioned briefly, you know, Minnesota has a cost sharing program where the state can can pay you for converting part of your lawn to to native prairie. You should look into that program because that's yeah. motivation. We've, we've actually had two different podcast episodes about the Lawns and Legumes program. And if people are listening to this right when it releases, it's one of the last week or two weeks before you have to get your application in. So make sure to look up Lawns to Legumes. And I think it was episode three that we talked about it. And then I think episode 10 was the next one. So yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful program. Okay, great. And and, and now I'm sorry, I've forgotten your question. No, what are the next action steps? What other things after people remove lawn and then add native plants to that? What what other things should people be doing? Well, boy, when you've done that, you... you You've you've taken care of your responsibility. You you you. If you're going to quote own a piece of the earth, it is your responsibility to be a good steward of that that little piece of the earth. So you know what you just described is a great start. Of course, I would also decrease or eliminate my use of of insecticides. We're, we're trying to get a balanced ecosystem here, and you're not going to do it without insects. So, so hiring Mosquito Joe to come spray your yard or fog your yard after you've done this just negates everything you've just done. You've just killed all the insects that are in your yard. So be sure you don't do that. Homeowners use a ton of insecticides that uh, they just grab the can and they spray everything. Tolerate the life that you've just brought to your yard. Yes, if you put an oak tree in your yard, there are going to be insects that eat it. That's its job. And if you start squishing everyone or killing everyone, you're, you're, you know, there's a disconnect there. The reason your oak is there is to help support the life around you. There's a, a woman in, in New Orleans, Tammany Baumgarten, who says we should all practice the 10 step program. Take 10 steps back from your, your trees and all of your insect problems disappear. And that is the, 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 Distance at which we view most of our, our plants and our trees. We don't examine them right up front. They're all going to have little bits eaten out of them. And if they don't, they're not doing their job. So build a little tolerance into your landscape as well. So I have a friend who I gave your book to, and she's been reading it. I called her and talked to her about what what should I ask Doug Tallamy when he comes on the podcast today to talk through things. And her big question was um, that the first hundred pages or so of um, – I had to look. I couldn't remember if it was Nature's Best Hope or Bringing Nature Home. But Nature's Best Hope is – it's a little dour. It's, it's, it, it's not necessarily a pick-me-up – kind of kind of book explaining and, and setting up where things aren't going well. How do you project hope and how do you help people understand that they're taking care of their lawn and, and their, their landscape. And I love when you just said earlier that no one has the ethical right to ma- mismanage the watershed and that kind of thing. How, how do you project hope and how do you tell people that this is something you can do and we can all do this together? Well, I, 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 you know, I talk a little bit about the history. That was the dour part of, of, of the book. Our, 
our culture has assumed that humans and nature cannot coexist. And we've built everything around that. And, and when there wasn't that, that there weren't that many humans around and there was a lot of nature, it, it worked. But now that's just reversed. There's humans everywhere. And, and if we continue with this exclusionary approach to nature where, you know, humans are here and nature is someplace else. In most places, there aren't very many someplace else's. You know, that's not necessarily true in northern Minnesota, but we've eliminated nature from human dominated landscapes. We've got parks and we've got preserves and we're in the sixth great extinction. So those parks and preserves are not working. They're not big enough and they're too small and they're too isolated. So my message to people is that we've got to do conservation on private property. Most of the country is privately owned. It's owned by people. And they all have a responsibility to at least be good stewards of the land they, they own. It's not a big ask. It's a, just a basic responsibility. We, you know, we have, we do do conservation, but we've, we've turned it over to a few specialists, you know, a few ecologists, a few conservation biologists, and everybody else seems to have a green light to, to wreck, wreck the planet. That is hurting us. It's hurting you. It's hurting me. So this is, I'm really asking you to be a little bit more selfish and and take care of yourself. This is our nest. We're fouling it. We don't foul our houses. You know, we clean them up. This is our house. We've got to clean it up. So the big thing is I found is people don't push back against that. They just didn't know it. They didn't realize that we're in the sixth grade extinction. They didn't realize that nature is supporting us. And, you know, it's interesting. We like it. But if it disappears, that's okay, too. So when you find out that, no, it's not okay, most people seem to be very much on, on board. And that's why I say, you know, you are nature's best hope. Everybody's got to adopt this, this action plan and, and enact it. And if you do it, we're good. If you don't, we're not so good. So, you know, I'm putting, I'm, I'm, the, the ball is in your court now. Uh, and whether or not we take advantage of it, we're just going to see. And this is a wonderful place to end the first episode here. And if you could give people an understanding of what your homegrown national park movement is and how they can participate in that, and then we'll end this and we'll we'll invite everyone back to the second episode this summer. Well, homegrown national park is is our uh, attempt to get this message, what I just articulated, to get it to go viral. If we cut half the area that's in lawn right now, if we got 40 million acres of lawn in the U.S., if we cut that in half, that gives us 20 million acres to practice conservation on. So that's the low-hanging fruit. That's something we can all do right away. So Homegrown National Park is, you go to our website, homegrownnationalpark.org, and the object is to get yourself on the map to say, okay, I live here. I'm going to conserve. I'm going to, I'm going to be a good steward of this much land. I'm going to replace part of my lawn. I'm going to put in trees. I'm going to take care of it in, in a responsible way. And your little piece of the world is going to light up. And the object is to, to make this a visual, visual progress. We can see the U.S. adopting this, see it spread. We can see where the gaps are as more and more people light up the map. And, you know, we, we, it's, it's our attempt using social media in the form of this map to change the culture. We got about twelve thousand people on the map right now. I will be happy when we have twelve million people on the map. So get yourself on the map. Talk to your neighbors. Exactly. And what what are the qualifications? Like what people have? What do people have to do in order? Is it is it switching 
lawn to native landscape? Is it, is there qualifications? Like what do people need to do? It's free. So they don't have to do anything financially. They have to, to make a commitment to increasing the, the amount of native plantings on your property and removing the invasive plants that are on your property. Most people do have invasive species on their property. Most people have planted them. So, so start a transition where you're removing the, the, you know, the burning bush and the breadfruit pear and the, the barberry. A lot of people have buckthorn along their, their margins of their, they, they say oh, it makes a nice hedge. Now these are, these are, um, ecological cancers, you know, they're tumors and, and they're castrating our natural areas. So we want to remove those. These are commitments. We don't expect you to do it all before you get on the map. Say, I'm going to do this. And, and, and then you pick at it. it becomes, becomes a weekend hobby. Perfect. I love all of that. Well, Doug Tallamy, thank you so, so much for being here for our first episode. I invite everyone to come back for the second episode that we'll release in the summer of 2022. And in that episode, we will talk all about the specific plant insect relationships and take a deeper dive onto that and what people need to do. So is there anything for this first part that I haven't asked you that you would like people to know? Well, just that conservation is, is serious business these days, and it's everybody's business. I think we've talked about it, but I'll emphasize that. Um, you are nature's best hope. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Doug Tallamy, and I will see you again at the next episode. You're quite welcome. See what I mean? That was just an absolutely incredible discussion that I am so honored to be have been able to have. And so Doug Tallamy has become world-renowned even since we aired this episode in the summer of 22 um it has become he has become even more well-known traveling the world and it's just really cool to see all the great things he's doing to make sure that we are promoting local ecosystems and making sure that our uh, friends our pollinators and everyone are having what they need in our local backyards front yards everywhere we've got to make sure that we are doing the right things and so with that the state of minnesota has a really cool program we touched on it in this episode called lawns to legumes and i in the minnesota house was honored to carry it this year when we put four million dollars into lawns to legumes and with that the spring cohort for getting financial assistance. So it's $300 or $400. Not everybody will get it, obviously, but a few hundred dollars to help promote, help you plant native plants in your landscape. And so it's a really, really cool program, but you have until November 30th of this fall to apply for the spring cohort. So if you want to plant native plants in the spring right now is the time to apply. So you go to bluethumb.org and click on Lawns Legumes there. So it's bluethumb.org. I'll put all the information in the show notes at minnesotagardening.com and hope to see you there. So make sure to tune back in next week for Doug's newest book, Professor Tallamy's newest book that we discuss. It's about the life cycle and the life, uh, a year in the life basically of an oak tree and why keystone plants are so important for native plants. So Make sure to do that, and I'll see you next week. 